0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Happy Friday and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us here on Washington Watch want to remind you, between now and December 31st, there is a special year-end challenge opportunity. Any gift you make to FRC between now and December 31st will be doubled. To do so, just call 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. That's 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. We are so grateful for your prayer and your support of this ministry. Today on the program. The vaccine mandate for military service members is about to end, but is there still reason for concern? We'll talk about why the answer may be yes. Also, the Heritage Foundation is out with a new report on illegal immigration. Among other things, they learned that in recent months, illegal immigrants have ended up on nearly every congressional district in the country. Tell you what else they learned. Also, Twitter has banned some left-wing journalists, and suddenly the left is very concerned about censorship. What changed? We'll talk about that. As well as, what does the Bible say about free speech? Anything at all? We'll cover that in our worldview conversation coming up. But first, our headline. Last night, the U.S. Senate passed a short-term spending bill that delays the government shutdown deadline to next week instead of this week. You may have heard Senator Mike Lee on the program with Tony yesterday discussing an amendment he proposed to extend short-term funding into next year when Republicans control the House, but that amendment did not pass. So what can we expect next week as the budget talks continue? Joining me now to discuss it, as well as an interesting hearing he was part of this week, is U.S. Representative Michael Cloud. He serves on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform and represents the 27th Congressional District of Texas. Congressman Cloud, good to see you today.
1: Yeah, good to be with you.
0: Good to have you. Now, first, I want to talk about... Funding the government and the controversy uh, that that represents this week. And here's what Senator Schumer had to say yesterday about the negotiations. Let's play clip one.
2: Nobody's going to get everything they want, but the final product will include wins everyone can get behind, including passing the Electoral Count Act, (coughs) emergency aid for Ukraine, and funding for our kids, our veterans, our small businesses, and our military families. No drama, no gridlock. No government shutdown this week. It's a win for the American people. Representative Cloud, do you agree with that?
1: Well, you know, the the pathway to $30 trillion in debt is always passing a bill where there's something in it for everyone. Uh, It's it's tragically predictable, uh, knowing that we would be at this point to see a CR to a CR to a CR to kick this to here because so they can build the Christmas tree. they, They call it where everybody throws their ornaments on the tree of a bill. Uh, and then we get it at the last minute, and we're supposed to vote on a massive spending bill without even reading it. Of course, uh, it's tragically predictable. It's not the way to run a, a great country.
0: I just want to make sure the audience can follow some of the terms because you talk about CRs, and and there's some really uh, there's yeah. some. Language here and vocabulary I want to define very quickly. CR stands for continuing resolution, and that's a way the government, um, when it gets to a deadline, passes something that's very short term. And so that's what they just did extending. So we're going to fund the government for one more week until next week when they pass what's going to be referred to as (laughs) this omnibus bill. And that's something – and I'm actually going to let – Senator Lee described this omnibus bill and the process, because the concern here is at the threat of, of not funding the government. We're gonna create this big giant bill that we don't pr- debate the particulars of, but we're all gonna pass it just so the government doesn't shut, out, uh, shut down. And here's what Senator Lee says the impact of that is, let's play clip two and then clip four and then Representative Cloud, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond.
3: There seem to be people who want to make sure that all spending decisions are wrapped into one spending bill. Very often, those are wrapped together in one omnibus spending package and then held off until a day or two, sometimes just hours, before the government is set to shut down. That's when the magic happens. But it's not good magic, it's really bad magic. That task involves convincing senators to vote for a bill 3,000-plus pages long likely this year containing 7,500 or so earmarks, a bill that they have never seen, a bill that does not, as we speak right now, exist without ever having seen it. We all know that this is wrong. We all know that this is a corrupt way to run a government. This is a corrupt process that brings about all kinds of special interest giveaways. And in the absence of the light of day, they pass with the threat, the extortive threat, Of a government shutdown or canceling Christmas, members end up voting for that which they know they have no business supporting.
0: Representative Cloud, is that a fair description of what's happening right now that Senator Lee just gave?
1: That's a very fair description. And what's really sad about it is the fact that this isn't like a first time thing. This is almost predictable. Uh, You know, the idea that they're going to use Christmas constantly to pass a massive Spending bill, and they hold it to the last minute specifically so that it doesn't get any sort of oversight or any sort of scrutiny, and and so all all the special interests get what they need out of a massive spending bill, and the American people are left with a, a massive burden of debt to pay for it all. Uh, it, it, you know, people don't like process arguments sometimes. But uh, at the same time, we've got to start holding people accountable who are willing to let bad practices continue in in our government. Uh, This is no way to run a a government that's going to be for and by the people and certainly in the best interest of the people.
0: I think objectively, most people would look at this process and say, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't be debating oh, and yeah. about to pass a <laughs> bill that nobody's even seen. What's the solution to this? Is it just people becoming aware and holding elected officials accountable? Is there something that those who are currently elected can do to stop this process from becoming basically an annual uh, uh, habit? Uh,
1: for sure. You know, the fiscal year is supposed to end in September. And we're supposed to pass 12 appropriations bills through the course of the year to fund the government. That doesn't happen, rarely happens, hasn't happened in a long time. And and what we do is everybody ends up throwing this into this massive, huge bill that gets very little scrutiny at the end. And it's very simple what representatives or senators can do is you vote no. Uh, And a lot of times, you know, people ask me, well, why did you vote for this or this or against this or this or this? And it's like, (laughs) well, this is why, because it's, it's a bad way to run a government. There's a bunch of stuff in it that we shouldn't be spending on it. Sure, there's going to be when you're spending a, a trillion dollars or, or plus, there's going to be a couple of good things in it. But as long as we continue to let this kind of malfeasance happen uh, in our country, we're going to get more of it. And so we've got to have enough people saying enough is enough. Uh, you know we're, we 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 are at a very dangerous point when you study the rise and fall of nations from a fiscal standpoint where the world's reserve currency but not acting like it you know we've got to get serious about good governance uh, if we're going to turn this around
4: now, Representative Cloud,
0: I'm going to switch topics on you. Uh, you sit on the House Oversight Committee. Earlier this week, the Democrat majority on that committee, they scheduled a hearing on anti-LGBTQ violence. Now, of course, everyone is anti-violence, but in that yeah, uh, in in that committee. Uh, You had a conversation with uh, Dr. Jesse Pocock, who's the CEO and executive director of a group called Inside Out, and they help children get gender-denial surgery. They would call that gender-affirming surgery, but it helps them deny their biological sex and live as the opposite sex. So I like to refer to it as gender-denial surgery. And you had an exchange uh, with her that was very interesting. Let's play clip six, and then I want you to react to this.
1: You do a significant amount of your work with kids even starting at age 13. Uh, what what would be the age of consent then in your in your mind?
5: Uh, in our community, the age of consent to mental health therapy is twelve years old.
0: Representative Cloud, that answer surprise you?
1: In, in a way, no, because this isn't the only hearing I've sat in where you see this kind of same ideology being pushed. And I started off the question asking, like, what's the role of tr- the traditional nuclear family uh, in in this whole process, and what you see. Uh, and, and talking about the role that parents could or should play uh, in, in these kind of discussions and what's going on and whether they have a right to know what's going on in the lives of their children. Uh, and this is just one example of many I've seen uh, through the course of time on that committee where you you see this movement to push this onto our kids, uh, but not only push it in on the kids, but do it to intentionally do an end around the parents uh, being involved in these sorts of discussions. and, and it's it's very troubling uh, to see this continue.
0: Now when she says the age of consent to mental health therapy is twelve years old, do you take that to mean merely conversations in terms of mental health therapy, or does this extend to hormone treatments and potentially uh, surgical interventions?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know the exact timeline in their organization of how they do it, but I know that they begin at that point, starting to talk and kind of prepare them in that direction again, without the consent of parents, uh, on the way to hormone therapy and then to surgery and those kind of things. Uh, the other thing I asked her about was about what about these people coming out detransitioning? Uh, what 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 what's their story then? You know, did they get it wrong or are they? Is it this fluid thing? Just wanted to get her take on it. And basically she denied that it was even happening, that there aren't a such thing as detransitioners when, you know, it's, uh, there's plenty of stories of people coming out now saying, you know, that that was a a season in my life and I wish I could have it back because I did irreversible damage to my, my body. I can't have kids anymore. And the the like, and, you know, so uh, this is definitely, you know, (laughs) We, we've got to stop any sort of movement that's trying to divide parents from their kids uh, and, and restore the role of our family in our society.
0: I think it makes sense why they would want to deny the existence of detransitioners, because, frankly, uh, the implications for those who make a living cutting off the genitals of children and sometimes adults uh, in, in this cause, it, the implications of that are w- very hard to swallow if you recognize, if you are mm-hmm. willing to acknowledge you might have made a mistake. You've essentially ruined someone's life uh, without maybe full, full consent from them, and there's nothing that you can do to give that back to them. But you've, you've also mm-hmm. mentioned the conversation that you had about parental rights. Dr. Pocock addressed the issue of whether parental consent should be involved in these cases. Here's what she had to say. Let's play clip five.
5: In terms of parents' rights to know at schools, I mean, here in Colorado, parents don't have the right. If a young person is questioning their gender or their sexuality, there are laws in place that say that they have the right to process that with their trusted counselor so, so you do- and so forth.
0: Representative Cloud, in light of that perspective, parents don't have those rights. They have the right to just talk about that with their, quote, unquote, trusted counselor, whoever that is. Um, What should parents be doing in response to this kind of a revelation?
1: Well, you've got to stay close to your kids and you've got to be very aware of what's going on. You you know, a, a few months ago in a different hearing on that same committee, they were working, we were having a hearing on a bill that was dealt with surveys that are going out sometimes to our kids federal surveys and and they talked about a knowledgeable proxy being able to answer for someone and that was the term you got to watch these terms they use a uh, knowledgeable proxy being able to answer that survey on behalf of someone and we tried to make the we had had an amendment saying for a minor, for a child, that term knowledgeable proxy should be a parent or guardian. Uh, and they voraciously fought against that and voted that down because they want to be able to do an end around the parents. And as a matter of fact, when I had asked her about the nuclear family and the role that they should have, it, her response went to trusted a, adult, a trusted adult. So it's not about parents. It's about a trusted adult, which could be anyone in their term. And, and, and yeah. it, you know, it, it's... You got to watch the terminology on these because they've learned to to package very evil things with nice sounding phrases. Uh, And we shouldn't be shamed into letting our children's lives be destroyed.
0: My concern is that what they mean by trusted as a trusted adult is trusted by the government, not necessarily trusted by the (laughs) child. Representative Cloud, thanks for your time today.
1: Exactly. God bless you.
0: Coming up, the COVID mandate may be over in the military, but is the problem over? We'll talk about it when we come back.
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
3: Welcome
0: back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. It's my pleasure to be with you as we all get ready for the Christmas season now just a little more than one week away. The U.S. Senate passed the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act yesterday, sending the $800 billion bill to the president's desk for signature. Among other things, the bill will repeal the COVID-19 vaccine for military members. However, the NDAA does not reinstate members of the military who were discharged or had benefits cut off for not getting the shot. And with both the White House and the Pentagon still on record as wanting the mandate in place, what could this mean for military members who will claim a religious exemption from the shot? Joining me now to discuss this is Danielle Runyon, senior counsel at First Liberty Institute. In January 2022, First Liberty Institute won the first injunction against the military's vaccine mandate in Navy SEALs versus Biden. Danielle, welcome to Washington
7: Watch. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, we're
0: glad to have you. First, just tell me what your reaction was when you learned that the NDAA would include language ending the vaccine mandate for service members.
7: Well, it was certainly a pleasure to hear. It's a good first step. Uh, We need to move on from the mandate for sure and be focused on national security. However, um, the fact that this is not going to protect those who have been punished or discharged or in the process of being discharged, That highlights why our case is so important and why it must continue.
0: Now, tell us a bit about your case. What are you hoping to accomplish?
7: So in the Navy SEALs case, uh, we achieved a preliminary injunction, which basically stopped any punishment or uh, any Navy service members from continuing to be discharged for failure to follow the COVID-19 vaccine uh, mandate order. Uh, We received a preliminary injunction for the entire class so for over 3,400 sailors, uh, they remain in place and they're able to work. But we need to still address the discrimination that occurred here, the the punishment, the mistreatment, uh, and eventually obtain a permanent injunction so that this doesn't happen again.
0: Now explain how this could happen again, because the headline here, we think, is that the NDAA has language that's ending this mandate and everybody celebrates that. But why is it why is there concern? What could the Department of Defense do subsequent to the NDAA being passed that would essentially reinstate this? Or is that the actual concern?
7: Well, what we see is that there was language in the 2022 NDAA that talked about the service characterization that those who are being discharged for failure to follow what Congress had said was the lawful order to get vaccinated, that language still is in this 2023 NDAA. So presumptively uh, the DOD could continue to discharge members who failed to follow the order. Uh, So we need to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: I mentioned in the uh, top of the segment that the bill does not reinstate anyone who has been discharged because of the mandate and their refusal to comply with the mandate previously. Now that this mandate has been revoked, is there any hope? Is there any opportunity for those who were dismissed that they might get their jobs back?
7: Well, we'll see what happens in the new year. We'll see what happens when uh, Congress comes back from break. Uh, We'll see if there's any new legislation that's put on the table. But for now, again, that's why our case continues and why it's so important. Um, People are excited that the mandate for those who are entering the service and even for those of us who are continuing to serve, that we don't have to um, be forced to comply with uh, the requirement. But we still need to address the discrimination that occurred and uh, the failure to honor religious liberties.
0: Danielle, you hinted at it there. I understand that you remain in military service. Uh, Tell me why this is so important to you as a personal matter.
7: Well, for one, I'm a plaintiff in the Spence case that we have here at First Liberty. It's important to me because I very much uh, have an interest in our national security Um, I wish to continue to serve. I love my job in the military. And and that's why so many of us are fighting to remain employed and to keep our jobs, whether we're active duty or reserve. Um, We're patriotic individuals. We took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And and we just want to move on from this. Uh, We want it addressed, certainly, but we want to move on. We want to continue to serve. And um, that's really the goal here for all of us.
0: Well, we want to move on could be the motto for the last few years, I suppose, in so many different ways. But, Danielle, because you are in the reserves, you have relationships with people in the military, you're working with clients who are in the military, how would you describe the impact all of this debate over vaccine mandates and religious exemptions has had on morale of
7: our troops? It's been devastating to morale. For a year and a half or more, we've been focused on this discussion and focused on the fact that people were faced with losing their livelihoods uh, losing their benefits losing their pensions Um, I certainly thought that I was going to retire uh, as a military member I had no desire to stop serving at a certain point in time many of the individuals who are part of the Navy class part of the Air Force class um, that's being litigated in the courts uh, entirely devastating to their families it's, it's just been really a, a horrible year and a half. We want to move on from it, and we just we want to continue to serve proudly as we had before. Uh, we want the discrimination to end, and we want to fix this problem so that going forward, religious liberties are honored in, in the military services.
0: And Danielle, the military has acknowledged uh, difficulty meeting their recruitment goals, and it's hard to prove uh, what It is exactly that's leading to those challenges for the military. Anecdotally, do you think that what they're dealing with in with requiring mandates, vaccine mandates like this and just kind of the the general climate around the military, is that discouraging people from signing up to serve?
7: I absolutely think it is. I think that even the prospect of boosters for those who maybe were coerced or didn't want to take the initial round of vaccines. um, you know, they, they feel like this is something that, that they probably didn't want to do. The prospect of having to do it again, I know that many were um, very disgruntled about that. And I know that for those on the outside, just the thought of having to deal with this and, and look, look at all this litigation. Who wants to who wants to be bothered with that? We need to get back to focusing on national security and defending our nation.
0: Seems like a simple premise that we all can get behind and maybe that can be our Christmas wish for the new year. Danielle Runyon, First Liberty, thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for your service to our country as well.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Coming up next, a new report says that the Biden administration is colluding with non-governmental organizations as part of its mishandling at the southern border. We'll talk about it with one of the authors of the report when we come back right after the break. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
5: Are you a university student?
0: Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. According to a recent report from the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project, the Biden administration is working with a network of private organizations to facilitate the worst border crisis in American history. By tracking cell phone data, The report's authors found that migrants had been placed in 431 of 435 congressional districts across the country. That means virtually every part of the country is being affected by the current border crisis. Joining me now to discuss the report and its findings is Mike Howell, Director of the Oversight Project for the Heritage Foundation. Mike, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. First, tell me just the the headlines for you from this report. What did you learn from your research? So we looked at the cell
8: phone movement data for a one-month period, so a short period of time for only 30,000 devices at 30-plus separate NGO facilities. So this is a small, small snapshot. Um, And we found that they went to virtually every single congressional district on the U.S. mainland. And so we were very surprised to find this. So basically ran this study again with a new set of NGOs, found it again. And then we zeroed in on one Catholic Charities facility down there, found the same finding pretty much. And so the big takeaway is, you know, we've all been saying the border crisis, every state becomes a border state. Well, now it's every congressional district is impacted by this. So uh, we're blown away by the cooperation, the level of this mass human resettlement program and uh, calling for it to be shut down.
0: Now, Mike, the methodology for your research here is is remarkable in and of itself. How did you have the ability to track the cell phone data of people who were coming into the country illegally to find out where they were going? So
8: commercially available cell phone data is something that uh, has grown. It's an industry unto itself these days. The federal government relies on this uh, data tool all the time. They did it for COVID. I uh, remember seeing maps on you know CNN and such. Uh, where they would track, uh, say, spring break in Miami and then follow cell phones back to other parts of the country to make the argument about the the spread of COVID and uh, anti-spring break. Uh, The federal government used this in the January 6th prosecutions, where they basically pulled all the cell phone data uh, from everyone in the vicinity of the protest that day and and used it to to track people down. So in in seeing this over time, I thought, why don't we use this uh, for the border purposes? And the technology worked very, very well.
0: What do you think the implications of these findings are? You mentioned that you, you were able to track illegal immigrants to 431 of the nation's 435 congressional districts. What do you learn from that?
8: So we learned that the Biden administration has basically offshored a bunch of the responsibility for handling this border crisis to the NGOs. Um, we all remember about a year or so ago when thousands and thousands of Haitians were you know, camped out under bridges in Del Rio. That's the only time the liberal media really challenged the Biden administration on this crisis. So the Biden administration's top concern now is not securing the border; it's avoiding you know bad pictures like that. And so they rely on these NGO partners to take custody of illegal aliens and get them you know away from the border as soon as possible uh, to make it seem like less of a crisis. So the the finding is we don't need to just shut down the Biden administration's implementation of this crisis we need to go after their partner organizations as well. And that's why uh, we applauded Governor Greg Abbott, who announced just a couple of days ago, he's investigating the NGOs.
0: That seems like it could be the biggest finding of your research if- what you found is true that the response from the White House is not primarily securing the border and dealing with the problem, but making the problem look less severe than it actually is. You talk about this network of national, of non-governmental organizations, NGOs that are at, that are working with the federal government at the border. Is that a new development? Have past administrations done that as well? Or is that something specifically the Biden administration has uh, has brought in in order to change the way it's being dealt with?
8: So the NGOs have been involved in border politics and uh, this operation for a very, very long time, but never, ever to the scale. I mean, we're talking a a scale now that far exceeds anything in, you know, United States history, but also world history in terms of uh, the border crisis. Um, These NGOs also lobby Washington, D.C. very heavily. I've been the recipient of such lobbying uh, to keep the borders open, to keep the NGOs business. They receive a lot of federal grants. Uh, And frankly, there are some on the right here in the Republican Party that are sympathetic to these NGOs. A lot of these NGOs present themselves as charitable and Christian organizations to give themselves a little bit of cover. So they've been able to fool some people. But the truth of the matter is they're not just involved at the border and taking receipt. They're involved south of the border. Uh, They're involved across the world in pushing migration, facilitating it, helping coach Illegal aliens to file frivolous asylum claims. Uh, at every single level, they're they're involved, and there's a lot of money behind this operation.
0: So are you saying that the lobbying efforts in D.C. and, in fact, the what would be described as philanthropic work at the border is, in fact, just an industry of immigration where people are able to where you create the demand for the service by allowing by having a soft border policy. But then you go down there and provide the services and the government just gives you money to provide those services that they otherwise could eliminate the demand for.
8: Yeah, you said it better than I could. That's exactly what is happening. Uh, I think people, though, are wisening up to this. We've seen a lot of uh, reactions from leaders on Capitol Hill saying they need to subpoena the NGOs, uh, they need to call them up for Congress, they need to review their funding. Uh, Right now, in the omnibus bill, there's about a billion dollars, billion with a B, that would go to just paying off these NGOs to do this kind of stuff, you know, a taxpayer expense. So this stuff is now coming to the attention of a, a lot of leaders. And Greg Abbott certainly stirred the pot when he announced the investigation. So hopefully things are changing.
0: Very quickly, about 20 seconds, do you think the Republican leadership in the next Congress might investigate this?
8: I I think they're going to have to, because that's what very powerful uh, Republicans in committee positions have indicated they want to do. So it's going to be hard to say no to not shutting down the border crisis, so they better.
0: Mike Howell, director of the Oversight Project for the Heritage Foundation, thanks for your research and your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up next... Lots of fireworks from Elon Musk and Twitter. CNN is threatening to with change their relationship with Twitter. Does Twitter even care? And what does the Bible say about free speech? If anything, we'll talk about all of that when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
4: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
5: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
6: Beginning
3: to look a lot like Christmas.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. It's my pleasure to be with you. Last night, Twitter suspended the accounts of roughly a half dozen prominent journalists from the platform, continuing Elon Musk's rapid pace of change at the company. Now, the suspensions appear to be due to their tweeting images from accounts that track the location of Musk's private plane. Musk said that Twitter's rules on the sharing of someone else's personal information, often referred to as doxing, apply to journalists as well as everyone else. As we now know, the previous regime routinely silenced conservative voices. But now that it's happening to the left, we see a panicked response from legacy media. How should conservatives who believe in the First Amendment react to all of it? Joining me now to discuss it is Scott Shepard, director of the Free Enterprise Project, the National Center for Public Policy Research. Scott, welcome back to Washington Watch.
2: Thanks so much. Good to be on with you again, Joseph.
0: It's good to see you again. Now, I tried to describe what was happening here, this uproar about the fact that uh, these journalists have been suspended by Twitter, the horror of it all. Is this actually connected to doxing, or is there anything more to the story?
2: Well, it it appears to be a a tragedy of doxing and a tragedy of uh, rules being applied to left-wing journalists in the same way that they're, they're applied to everybody else. And, you know, CNN is absolutely having a predictable meltdown. We've heard a lot about how David Zasloff and Chris Licht over there, or Light, however you pronounce his name, are changing CNN for the better. But they just still couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that there are rules against doxing, which is to say literally endangering people by saying what uh, how to reach them to hurt yeah. them. Um, and that's being applied to CNN's journalists who've been doing it for years while claiming that unsafety is created merely by disagreeing with opinion. So if you disagree with a journalist, that's unsafety for the journalist. But if the journalist doxes somebody, says, here's where this person lives, here's how to attack them, that somehow wasn't unsafe or dangerous. And, and finally, Elon Musk is, is saying, no, we're going to apply the rules to everybody. That's how how this works. And the left-wing journalists have, have just absolutely melted down.
0: To provide a bit more context for those who may not be following this story and even be that familiar with what doxing is, what was happening, allegedly, and I think there's there's good proof of this, is this was the doxing of Elon Musk himself. A handful of—and Elon Musk, of course, is a very controversial figure at this point, and this story helps uh, illustrate that. Purchased Twitter. He is now persona non grata for many on the left. Lots of people really dislike him, and a handful of people had gone to tracking his every movement and identifying publicly on the internet where he was, where his children was, where his family was on a moment by moment basis. That's what doxing is. And doing that to somebody who is a highly controversial figure and has lots of people who hate him. And so that's the context of this. And Elon Musk happened to be the target of it. But he also said, if you're going to do that on Twitter, now you can't do that, and we're going to stop you from doing that. Now, of course, the past regime also had policies against doxing, and I think we can objectively understand why that is. Any of us who would be uh, the potential targets of that could be bothered by that. But do these journalists do they deny that they were doxing, or are they just concerned now that the uh, the they that the rules are being applied? Um, against them rather than on their behalf.
2: No, that's that's exactly right. They haven't flat out said no we haven't been doxing. What they've done is do, they they've characterized and covered this by the same lies that they always use. They said, well, it's objecting to Musk and his uh his control over Twitter that's caused them to be um uh suspended. That's absolutely false. It's because they were providing information, providing addresses, providing ways that people could harass Musk and others, with with genuine, actual unsafety. And in fact, somebody did attack a car that one of Musk's kids were in. So it was legitimately an attack. And the attack is being, I mean, the attack's being spread today in response to the rules applying to everybody. And TIFO, which the, the fellow who, uh, one way or another, occupies the White House sometimes these days, um, insists is just a theory. Well, that theory... Is, is rallying to attack Tesla dealerships in the Portland area and, and really has a lot of muscle and a lot of firepower for something that uh, that we're, we're told is just a, a stray thought.
0: Now, the response to this is in some ways just funny because CNN has, has really taken this on as a crusade. They actually issued a statement in response to this. They're demanding answers from Twitter. And uh, I'm going to play clip seven here. Here's what CNN has said about these incidences and what they might do about it. Let's go ahead and play clip seven.
6: I want to read you the full statement, Allison. It says, uh, the impulsive and unjustified suspension of a number of reporters, including CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, is concerning but not surprising. And it goes on to say Twitter's increasing instability and volatil- volatility should, have, should be of incredible concern for en- everyone who uses Twitter. And then it goes on to say, we've asked Twitter for an explanation, and we will reevaluate our relationship based on that response.
0: So, Scott Shepard, CNN is going to reevaluate their relationship with Twitter. I mean, this feels a bit like uh, Yahoo threatening to reevaluate their relationship with Google. Does Twitter <laughs> actually need CNN?
2: No, no, nobody needs CNN, as as you can tell by its viewing figures, which are with an rounding error of absolutely nobody on earth watching CNN. But I'll tell you what: for a company to say that um, strange and false and disinformational behavior is occurring at a different company for CNN to say that. I mean, think about oh, uh, you know, um, the the Russian dossier was true, but Biden, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop was was Russian disinformation. I mean, that's the tip of that iceberg. But those people lie constantly. That's the place where the poor kid from uh, Kentucky, um, Sandman, Nick Sandman, was attacked as a smarmy racist when all he was doing was trying to be polite to somebody who was shouting in his face. CNN is a trash heap. It should be swept into the ash heap of history. And you're exactly right. To to pull back a, a bumper sticker from when I was a kid, um, see, Twitter needs CNN like a fish needs a bicycle.
0: That seems like it might be true. And and I think a lot of the people who are complaining uh, might soon discover they don't have nearly the leverage that they think they have with Twitter. And I don't know that Twitter, frankly, cares if they take off. But there is a principle here that I want to discuss with you, Scott, because we do care about the First Amendment. And we remember it was very recent history uh, that a different regime at Twitter was kicking people off of the platform and people on the right were decrying censorship and being horrified by the threats to free speech that that represented. We now have different people being kicked off the platform. Should we be equally concerned that this is censorship, that the First, Amend- First Amendment is being threatened? Should we call Congress uh, to get these CNN journalists back on Twitter?
2: Well, I mean, the old rule in this country, all the way back to Justice Holmes a century ago, was you can't uh, shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't endanger people's lives, um, with free speech. And the, what's important for Twitter, uh, and we'll know that Elon Musk is doing right, if whatever rules he establishes, he applies uh, indiscriminately without regard to the content um, or the, the political party position of the, uh, of the supplier of the content. If no doxing rules apply to everyone equally, that'll be terrific. If you can't organize riots online, then it applies to Antifa as well as to I don't know. Whoever on the on the right is imaginarily supposed to be uh, uh, rioting, maybe those those parents going to PTA meetings. As yes. long as it's applied, as long as it's applied equally and honestly, I think it's going to be a terrific win, not only for the country but for the whole world.
0: And that is the question, will these be applied? Because we know that a lot of people on the right were being kicked off of Twitter, for example, saying that men cannot become women. That was the threat of violence uh, that was getting you banned from the platform. I think most people would say that that belief about uh, biology and about science is different than publishing the uh, location devices of people who have lots of, the, the location of people who have lots of enemies. But We do hope for consistency because that's one thing that freedom of speech definitely needs. Uh, Whether Elon Musk will pull that off remains to be seen, but uh, we can be hopeful. Scott Shepard, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Joseph. Anytime.
0: And certainly the legal conversation around free speech is important, Twitter and other places. However, there's more than a legal conversation for Christians to consider. We have to consider, what does the Bible say about freedom of speech? Does it say anything about it? With me to discuss that now is David Clausen, who is our director at the Center for Biblical Worldview at FRC. David, good to see you today.
6: Uh, Great to be with you as well, Joseph.
0: So let's break this down very quickly if we can. To my knowledge, there's no Bible verse that says thou shalt love free speech. And in fact, the Bible has a lot to say about what you should not say. Uh, you should not lie. There's lots of ways we should not use our tongue. And there are things that we are commanded to do with our tongues and encourage each other and exhort one another. And, and those type of things. From As Americans and Christians, what does the Bible have to say about free speech?
6: Yeah, well, you're right, Joseph. There's no verse that we can point to that says, thou shalt have free speech. Uh, that, that's not in the Bible in the same way that I think you can drive uh, a, you know, uh, understanding that we should have religious freedom. However, I do think that the Christian impulse should be towards free speech in the same th- way that I think uh, our impulse should be towards a, a marketplace of ideas when it comes to religion. Uh, you know, the Uh, The Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how we are endowed with moral agency. God does give us choice. Uh, Part of that is uh, what we choose to say and what we choose to not say. I think another Christian principle to think about this is the principle of fallibility. All of us are prone to error. We're all prone to bias. And one principle to keep in mind is that the lone dissenter, the minority voice in the room may be right. And so I think as Christians, we should advocate for as much free speech as possible and allow the, the good ideas, the true ideas, the beautiful ideas uh, to kind of rise to the top. So I think generally, Christians, our impulse is towards free speech.
0: Well, David, you talk about the fact that it's possible for the, the lone dissenter to be correct. And, and and certainly in theory, that is true. And we can understand situations and probably know of situations where that has been true. However, let's take a situation that is uh, where where the Bible is unambiguous about that. Why should Christians support the expression of ideas that we know are contrary to God's word?
6: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think, you know, as Christians, obviously, we are held to a higher standard. I think, you know, the Bible is really clear on the speech that, you know, we're allowed uh, to use. We're not allowed to uh, gossip or slander or lie. Uh, We're commanded to be truth tellers. And so I I think this is, you know, we don't have time to unpack this completely. I do think, you know, when it comes to speech codes and things like that, Joseph, uh, all forms of laws are, you know, legislating morality to some degree. Um, It gets tricky. Uh, You see this, you know, in countries that have blasphemy laws, for example, uh, which is, you know, you can't say anything against the prophet or you can't say anything against Allah. And that's a form actually of religious suppression as well. And so I think where I think that Christians should land on this is, you know, as much free speech as possible. And we hold ourselves in the church to a higher standard uh, because we know uh, that those guidelines that God gives us uh, those are two Christians uh, to speak the truth in love, not to lie, uh, et cetera. So I think those are some principles that can help us think about this.
0: Yeah, it seems connected to the conversation around religious freedom, David, and in, in this idea that um, while Christians don't believe everything is, or I, I guess I should say, around the, the conversation around legislating morality, right? And, and when it comes to, relig- to uh, the freedom of speech, because we would say that uh, y- you cannot avoid legislating morality. And that's just reality. Whatever your position is, you are legislating some kind of moral position. But we would also say that you should not legislate morality. Not everything that is wrong from a biblical perspective should be illegal from a legal perspective. Is that is that a similar framework to what we're talking about here with speech, with just because it's incorrect, just because it's not true, just because it disagrees with Scripture, that doesn't mean that the individual should not have the right to express that. And you think that's possibly uh, because there's no way to change someone's heart if someone is not free to be uh, honest about what is in their heart so we can deal with it?
6: I think so, Joseph. And I think uh, part of this conversation is we think about the conscience. Uh, The Bible says that we're to respect one another's conscience, that it's uh, and viable. Uh We think about the in, the, in, the inherent interiority of our faith. You know, try as I might, I can't actually convince you uh, to believe something that you don't actually believe. And so, I do think, like you said earlier, you know, we can't be shouting fire in a theater or using our speech that cause actual tangible harm or material harm, so to speak. But I do think um, we should allow. You know, and it, I think. When it comes to free speech as Christians, one of the reasons, Joseph, we want to allow as much free speech as possible is the evangelistic and missiological implications of that. Again, as Christians, we fight for a broad, uh, open public square because at the end of the day, we believe our ideas will win out through the power of the Holy Spirit. We think the arguments that we make about our faith are the most persuasive. And so, again, I think the conversation about free speech is analogous to this in some ways. Again, I'll return to what I said a moment ago, though. We do need to remember though that as Christians we're ha- called to a higher standard and we can call it, we can encourage and call other Christians out to make sure that our speech is edifying that no corrupting talk comes out of our mouth and only what honors the Lord and builds other people up.
0: And that's certainly guidance for how to behave on Twitter and every other social media platform for sure, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that we think people should be kicked off of platforms or thrown into jail because uh, th- they do things. They use coarse language, which, of course, Paul instructs us not to be doing. Uh, David, I'll give you the final word on this in about 30 seconds. Um, how, how do we, um, does this affect our evangelism, our evangelist to witness the ability to um, let other people say what they want to say?
6: I I think so, Joe. So that's why, you know, when we talk about hate speech, there are many people who say that, you know, saying Jesus is the the only way to heaven, that's hate speech. And People want to legislate against views we have on sexual morality, and so I do think as Christians, one of the reasons we want a broad public square, an open, free public square, is so we can articulate and advocate for our beliefs and seek to persuade our friends and neighbors, and so I'm not a free speech absolutist, but I do believe uh, that more free speech, the better, and I think that serves the gospel and the cause of Christ. David Klassen, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you, Joseph.
0: And friends, we thank you for your time as well. So good to have you with us today. We will see you on Monday here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing
3: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by
0: Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com.